A reading from Matthew 28. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for that reading, Emily, and thank you, William, for your reading, too. The kids are invited to Kids Church. voice of the Lord twists oaks and strips bare the forest, and in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. These were the words of the psalm that Rachel read for us this morning, and it's a, it's a beautiful psalm. It's one of those ones um, that as you read, you kind of wonder what's going on, but it has this way of sort of watching a thunderstorm and then seeing the cosmic power of the Lord in it and then crying glory because of that. Um, there's a, a well-named passage in a less-read book by C.S. Lewis where he talks about how, you know, before the modern age, if you looked up at the stars, you sort of saw an enchanted universe and things balanced and created in some ways, and now we look up and we see a void. Um, we see emptiness, we see this. And, and the psalmist, I think, today for us brings back that imagination that the earth is filled in some ways with his glory, that glory is abundant here, um, and that we but dim ourselves by looking at it more in a mechanical sense. It's not that those things aren't true, but they tend to make us um, smaller, I think, and less at home in the universe in which we live. The reason for that psalm this morning um, I believe, as the lectionary selected it for us, is it proclaims God the Father as the creator of all things. But it has this way in which the voice goes out. The voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, it says several times. And the voice of the Lord often, if, you've, if you're reading with the Trinitarian formula in mind, the idea of Father, Son, and Spirit, becomes this logos, this word that God speaks. And the earth being filled with the Spirit. All that to say, today is Trinity Sunday. Hooray! Um, uh, who, who said hooray? Rachel. Uh, she said that because I give her a hard time about not liking the Trinity because she has certain songs. Um, she's like, I don't like that song. And I'm like, it's because it's the Trinity again, isn't it? Um, uh, so you earned your credit today. Thank you, Rachel. Um, Trinity Sunday has these temptations in which we're tempted to, to, as pastors or preachers or as Christians, to describe the Trinity, to sort of make the Trinity make sense as if that's something we don't do all the time. Um, 
we end our service every Sunday in that, that doxological praise, that doxology that sings praise to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. My hope is that um, as we worship here, uh, not that every Sunday is Trinity Sunday, but the Trinity is not absent on any Sunday. Um, this isn't the Sunday where we come together and we say, well, let's talk about this thing and make sense of it and, and make sure it's an important stamped belief, and then we can forget about it as we go forward. Now, notably, this summer we'll be in the book of Job, so we might forget about it. <laughs> it's hard to bring into the book of Job, but it comes up in other parts of our worship service, I hope, in our, in our singing, in our praise. Um, and most notably, as I was thinking about it this way, the Trinity has this way, I think, in that it's a, a home for us. It's the place in which we live. The passage that uh, Emily read for us before she went down, that we are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It describes where we live as believers. We are brought in and marked with that three-part name, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in my younger um, and dumber days, if you can believe that, um, the, uh, I wrote a blog post, so that tells you how long ago this was, um, about questioning how the necessity of the Trinity as a doctrine was for Christian life, because it seemed to me, and this is the way it was functioning as a part of the group I was in, it was a question of, of do you believe in the Trinity? Yes, okay, moving forward. Um, and then it never left an impact or a mark in our lives. It seemed like a doctrine that was more like a test than it was a lived reality. Now, I made two mistakes there. One is, because a doctrine is more like a test, doesn't mean it's not useful. Um, uh, being young, you might say, like as I was, you know, well, if it's just a test, then get rid of it. And I think that was short-sighted on my part in many ways. Because it helps us name who this God is. It gives language to one whom we, when we meet with people and we say, I believe in God, and they say, I believe in God, to be able to articulate who the God is that we believe in. Because God, God as a term, God as a word, is used for many different things. Um, for us to say that we believe in God and to then have a conversation about it should draw us back to we believe in the God who's revealed in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, but secondarily, um, I overlet the group I was a part of determine what I think I thought of the Trinity. Um, because I think it devotionally has a great import for us. Now one of the things, just to briefly touch on, is, is the necessity of the doctrine of Trinity. Why it comes about is because the early church had the sense in which when Jesus walked with them, when he met with them, when he rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, that he was like God among them. He was God. And yet, because of their Jewish background, they have the sense of one God. And in the narratives, the Gospels in which we have today, Jesus is praying to one he calls Father. And after that, he says that he sends a spirit amongst us, different phrases in different Gospels, but, but the spirit who will be with us, um, the spirit will guide us. And, and so you have this sort of radical monotheism there is but one God, along with this temptation um, of three gods. Um, now, for about 150 years, this is where the doctrine of the Trinity develops. 
they, they held attention around this. Now, have any of you ever seen, and I mention this almost every year, the, the, when St. Patrick is asked to explain the trinities to, to Irish penates, uh, peasants uh, it's animated on YouTube? It's very funny because these animated little peasants come out to St. Patrick and they say, explain uh, to the trinity us, real simple like Patrick. And Patrick is like, okay, this clover is three leaves and this, that, and the other. Go, That's partialism, Patrick. And partialism, what's that? It's dividing the thing into three parts, and now they're not one anymore. And he's like, okay, well, water is ice, and uh, water is both um, solid, liquid, and gas. And they're like, that's modalism, Patrick. And so these, these peasants who don't know anything keep accusing Patrick of Trinitarian heresies. Um, it was so much so that I, I met with... Um, a person who was coming to this church, and they were like, Matt, I have the perfect image to encapsulate the Trinity. And I said, the best thing you can do is tell no one, um, uh, especially Irish peasants, because it's just a trap. Funny enough, Patrick then yells at them, fine, in the words of the Astronasian Creed, we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing in the divine being. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Spirit is still another. But the deity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is one equal in glory, co-eternal in majesty. And the Irish peasants say, well, why didn't you say that? Let's get smashed. Um, um, which is apparently the whole point of the skit. Um, uh, it's comical. You can look it up online. I think I've shared it in the email from time to time. Um, but we have that, that the way in which this trinity is attempting to argue, articulate the story of who God is for us because we have those dangers. We can fall into this. There are these three gods, and thus we are no longer capable of reading the Old Testament. Or we have this one God, and then Jesus becomes this adopted sort of figure into the Godhead. Um, and that's one of the early, early heresies, is that Jesus, uh, there's two sort of Christological heresies of understanding who Jesus is, is, is that he is... Um, so divine that when he dies, he doesn't really die. He ascends before he dies. Um, and then the alternative error is he's superhuman, but he's not God. And so that's why he's able to die. The fact that Jesus dies was a, a great challenge for them, which is a point to say that, that I, was, I was thinking about the Trinity this week is how important for it is for us to understand who Jesus is. The doctrine largely comes about as a way to understand who Jesus is. To say that Jesus is God. Now, this is, um, comes from sort of an Augustinian seven-part description of it, um, this image. It's in the bulletin, too, in which you would say the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. That's your first three sentences. Your next three sentences are the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and, you know, you have each of these. And then the last sentence, which is encapsulated by that middle section, is there is one God. Um, now, the challenge that I think pastors and us as Christians have is we begin to fall into this mystery of what does it mean for something to be three and one. And that's not to say that that's not a worthy discussion, but the Trinity and its basis for us is meant to drive us into this way of understanding the story of God and God's relation to us. How God is there for us. So that's um, start. I have a couple observations 
first that I want to make um, in different ways. For him, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. This comes from the book of Acts, and I think it describes going, connecting to what Emily read from the end of the book of Matthew. It is in this one whom we live and move and have our being. Paul here is, uh, Acts 17, is, is doing outreach in, a, in an area that has a bunch of different temples uh, to other gods. And he comes up to one, and he's, it's this one to the unknown god. Um, and what Paul says is that the unknown god has made himself known. For it is in whom we live and move and have our being, and we are his offspring. The importance, I think, of learning the Trinity for us as Christians today is for the same reason Paul was able to say, for the unknown God has made himself known. God has revealed himself to us. Um, this, uh, it's been a while since I've brought up my favorite um, distortion that I think the church works against today, and I hope that we work against it well. This is what um, most people, we're older now, um, or when the study came out, was a distillation of what most people believe they're probably between 27 and 37 today. Um, and this was Christian, non-Christian, everyone. This is what they believe about religion. And it goes by the great title, Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. And you'll see this is sort of their creed. A God who exists and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most other world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Good people go to heaven when they die. This was the standard creed that all those people believed. And I think as, as, there's two challenges as you go through it. One is... Um, it's not all wrong, right? You know, as you look at it, you're like, there's, there's some truth here, and then there's some distortion too. Um, it's not all wrong, but it also um, cuts off much of what we know. And what I think is, and what my hope is, is that saying that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit names a reality that's different than what's professed in this creed. It names that God has something to do with us. See, this creed and much of what we do in the modern world think, think religion, Christianity as, as a religion within that frame, is about our experiences and emotions as we sort of work our way out and finding ourselves on the journey of faith towards God. The difference with Christianity is God comes to us, which isn't to say experiences and emotions are not important. But what it does say is that this isn't something I found inside of myself, but something that came from outside to me. The solution to the struggles of humanity are not birthed within humanity, but in a father who sends his son to the earth to reconcile us in our exchange context, and a spirit then guides us afterwards. And so the content of Christianity unlike many other religions, is not a way of life. Um, it has a way of life attached to it, but it is a belief system in which we come to know something else. We begin to know and narrate ourselves in relation to God. This is why I think um, if you look at 
um, perhaps the current struggles of Judaism is there's a large segment of secular Judaism because it's the habits and practices. Um, in certain, um, talking to Jack and Izzy, in certain um, pockets, the Catholic Church um, in ethnic spheres struggles with this as well, is you show up to the things, but belief in the things isn't as important. It's more the cultural trappings. What's odd about Christianity amongst most of the religions is that the things that we're required to do are much smaller. We have no diet. We have no distinguished dress. We have no um, uh, pray and face this direction five times a day. That would be Islam. We have these things. And so the content of what we do is largely been brought into what we believe. And what we believe is narrated in this thing we call Trinity. Now, this quote on the back of the bulletin today is perhaps um, one of my favorite quotes because I think it describes at least what we try to do here. Um, we try and hope in here. Um, Robert Jensen, in this article on, on how the world lost its story, he's lamenting how Christianity has picked up slogans as a way to understand the faith. Um, Jesus is Lord or Christ died for my sins. Anything you see on a bumper sticker. Um, incidentally, I've never seen I Believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit on a bumper sticker. Um, so uh, that would be an exception in Jensen's quote, but that's not one we use. Um, we use several other slogans to encapsulate Christianity. Um, but what I think the quote tackles is this uneasiness with that name. I'll, I'll read it now. There's one slogan, as he's been complaining about the other slogans, that is a particular, uh, precisely a maximally compressed version of the one God's particular story. This is the revealed name. Now that's, I think, important language. This is the revealed name. Just as an aside, I've been doing, our kids do a little bit of a catechism thing through the new city catechism at times, uh, but I added my own question, which is to say that as I asked uh, Rosie and them, I say, is God female? And they say, no. And I say, is God male? And they say, no. And then I say, is God father? And they say, yes. In the sense that father is revealed language. Bible, the Bible uses a lot of other metaphors, um, both feminine, non-feminine, um, you are my stronghold, you are my rock, um, these type of things to describe God. But the Trinity in that way is revealed language. It's not metaphoric in the same other ways. Um, which isn't to say so at Defiance Church. My hope is we appreciate all the other metaphors. God is like a mother hen. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke that gathers chicks under her wings. But the like does a lot of work there. Whereas Father, it's never, uh, we don't pray our, our God who is like a father in heaven. It's revealed language, and it's also revealed language that's not meant to collapse into male. Then she asked about the son, and I was like, okay, moving forward, this gets complicated. Um, uh, yeah, it's just Trinitarian imagination already. The revealed name Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is this no accident that in our postmodern situation, the struggle between realistic faith and religious wool gathering settles into a struggle over this name? The triune names evoke God as the three actors of his one story and places the three in their actual narrative relation. Substitutes cannot do this. 
Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier, for example, neither narrates nor specifically names for creating, redeeming, and sanctifying are timelessly actual aspects of the biblical God's activity and are more other things that our punitive God somehow do in the postmodern situation. We will easily recognize congregations and agencies that know the world they inhabit by their love and fidelity to the triune name, and we will recognize antiquated Protestantism by its uneasiness with the triune name. Long quote to say that, that part of, I think, the struggle as we live Christian lives today is to narrate ourselves faithfully in the world in relationship to the one who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that, I think, is why it's important that we, we continually guard and look towards that name and presence. We baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is in that relation that we are found in which we live and move and have our being. And this um, prevents us from several errors. One of the first, he talks about Protestant liberalism here, which is different than I think what most we think of. But I'm going to pick on one, um, and that's Unitarian Universalists. They're sort of the first Protestant liberal denomination in America. And what they sort of say is that there is no trinity. That's the first step they make. And what they begin to say is that there is um, um, God, uh, to say that God is located in Jesus Christ has this exclusivity to it that any other human can also bear witness to this God. Um, and so they begin to lose their Christological foundations. Now, the best part about this story is, so they try to build a community around, gathering around this transcendent ideals. This is Ralph Waldo Emerson, if you're a nerdy U.S. history major, too. These transcendent ideals that name the goodness, but they have no particular story in which they fall into. Now, in the early time, they were essentially still trying to follow Christian beliefs, and they thought they were better at it is what you hope if you make a decision like that. But I met with the Unitarian minister here, and we had a great walk together. Um, and she described to me, because I had all sorts of weird questions about what they actually believe. And she described to me their history and how they came to what they believe, this, that, and the other. And I said, okay, it's good to know. If I come to your church, would I be welcome? And she said, no. And then she said it made her very sad, but she said anybody who is robustly Christian would find themselves alienated by the other people in the church um, because there's an exclusivity that comes with that. And so the idea that like the ideals, the transcendentals, which we can all agree on, are enough to ground us is only